Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It's great to have you on this holiday weekend, especially if you're a visitor in town. Thank you for taking the time to join us. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. And as a church, we are studying our way through the book of Genesis on both here our Spirit Lake as well as our Spencer campus. And we have been looking for the last few weeks at the life of a guy named Jacob in this book of Genesis. And Jacob, even though he's a patriarch, quite honestly, guys, he's not somebody for most of his life that you would really want to be friendly with. His name literally means deceiver. His name means con man. He was a rip-off artist, and it didn't matter if you were his close friend or even if you were his family. He would rip you off. That's a bad way to go. I mean, he even ripped off his brother Esau by stealing the birthright. He deceived his father by stealing the blessing that was his father was trying to give to Esau. In fact, it was so bad that his own fraternal twin brother was committed to killing him because of his deceptions and trickery. So he uh, ended up hitting the road, literally running for his life, and was out of town for 20 years staying at a relative's house. And if you've been with us, you know the story. He was gone and he left in utter poverty and didn't really have anything else besides the staff in his hand but during those 20 years, God was especially gracious. And through a series of circumstances, he moved him from poverty to having four wives, um, 12 kids, and actually quite a fair amount of money in the sheep and goat business. Things went pretty well in the livestock field for him. All because of God's gracious hand. In fact, after 20 years, God tapped him on the shoulder and told him, it's time now to come back to the promised land. It's time now to get back to what you should be doing and to right some of your wrongs. And actually, Jacob, in what was incredibly strong acts of faith, and one of the great high points, the high spiritual moments of his life, he actually ends up wrestling with God gets his name changed, and then he comes into the promised land and he does what is the unthinkable. He goes out of his way with a really high-risk, bold move to reconcile the broken relationship with his brother Esau. Now, many of you don't think that's a big deal, but you need to remember that Esau was a professional hunter. He was a professional killer. He had grown up to be sort of a terrorist of sorts with his own army, and here was Jacob trying to reconcile with his brother. And for Esau, at least for a period of time, we know that Jacob was on the top of his hit list. God was gracious. Jacob was humble. And the relationship was able to be reconciled. That was one of the great spiritual high points in Jacob's life. But here's what you need to know, that often the backside of a great spiritual high contains an incredible spiritual low. And that's what happened with Jacob. We know that Jacob had promised that when he returned to the promised land, he would go back to the city of Bethel, because Bethel was where Grandpa Abraham had built his first altar and had his conversion moment. 
Bethel was where God had appeared with angels on Jacob's ladder to Jacob when he left town. And God wanted him to go back to Bethel, and everything was going well. But Jacob, we saw, uh, was sort of all about partial commitment. Came back to the promised land, but didn't actually go where he was supposed to go. First, he went to the area called Succoth, which is, by the way, a great name for a town. What do you think about your town? Uh, it sucketh. It was actually more of a space of wide open places, plenty of space for his flocks, but really bad cell service, quite honestly. And he did stay there a while, set up some pens, and he said, you know, I want to move to a place that's a little more citified. I need some civilization. So he moved to the area called Shechem, which was a little bit to the west. And he had, at least they probably had a decent Walmart there. He could get some food. Things were nice. But it still wasn't Bethel. Bethel was 20 miles away. You're in the promised land, but you're not doing what you said you would, Jacob. You're not going where God wants you to go. It's partial obedience. And we saw last week that there are consequences of partial obedience. Sometimes when we engage in partial obedience to God's word, we endure the same kind of consequences as full-blown rebellion. Because what happened is when he moved next to Shechem, Shechem, we learned, was a Canaanite city. And if we've been around us for a while, you've, we've studied the Canaanites. The Canaanites were extremely sexually perverse people. This is why God had told them when Moses later conquers the promised land and Joshua conquers the promised land, they were to wipe the Canaanites off the face of the earth because they were so sinful and sexually promiscuous. And Jacob thinks, I can live next to these Shechemites and I can enjoy the world and I can enjoy the comforts of this place, but it won't, I won't let it affect me. He had sort of become one of those lukewarm Christians. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, sort of following God, but not really. It didn't really totally affect him living next to Shechem, but it definitely affected his children. And that's often the way it goes, not just for Shechem or for Jacob, but it goes for us. Last week, we had what is probably the, one of the hardest sermons for me to, to deliver in the entire year. Probably one of the hardest sermons for you to listen to in the entire year. Because we saw what happened to Jacob's daughter. She was about 16 years old, and she just wanted some freedom. And she ran away from home, ran away to the city of Shechem, and she was literally date-raped by the prince of Shechem. And he wasn't one of these friendly guys. He didn't even let her go home after he raped her. He kept her locked in his castle. And when he came to negotiate with Jacob and his sons, Jacob didn't really do anything, played a complete backseat role because he was spiritually lukewarm in that situation. Uh, Jacob's sons sort of stepped up to the plate and they negotiated Except they were all about trickery. They tricked the men of Shechem into circumcising themselves. That's painful. And then after three days, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, went into the city when all the men were in that state of helplessness and killed every last man and took all the stuff and the women for their own spoils. So Jacob's sons were at a completely spiritual low point. Just a really rotten week of last week as we studied it. But here's what you need to see. God sometimes allows 
tragedy and hard times into our lives to snap us out of our spiritual coma. Doesn't he do that? God allowed the difficulties and this mess that we looked at last week into Jacob's life, where his kids are literally kids gone wild, running amok. His family is a complete and total disaster to snap Jacob out of his spiritual stupor, out of his worldliness and out of his complacency. And that isn't just true for Jacob's life, but isn't that true for ours as well? You know, we have a great spiritual high. We're following Christ. Things are going really well. Maybe you were at the Bible conference, you know, and you came home from the Bible conference just totally juiced. Maybe you went to Hidden Acres and you made a big spiritual commitment to Christ. And like Jacob, maybe you had a high-risk reconciliation and you reconciled a broken relationship with somebody who had hurt you and things were going well. And you were on a spiritual high, but you, like, weren't watchful and all of a sudden you drifted. Stopped reading your Bible, stopped praying, stopped seeking God, and you wanted to become just like everybody else. And life fell apart. And God allowed a tragedy into your life, and things fell apart, and it snapped you to attention. And that's exactly what we find as we turn the page from Genesis 34, and we pick up today in Genesis 35. What is happening is God is snapping Jacob to attention. And i got to do something because my family is falling apart. Let's go ahead and pick up in Genesis 35, verse 1. We'll read the first four verses. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. In other words, remember where you were supposed to go in the first place? Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau, like you promised you would do. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, You know, put away your foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress." and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So God gets a hold of uh, Jacob and says, Remember, let's go back to Bethel where you're supposed to be in the first place, where you knew you should have been and where you drifted away from. And so Jacob says, you're right, I've got to get back to basics and what I should be doing. He grabs his family and he decides to have a family meeting. By the way, I don't believe this was just a family meeting of him and his four wives. I think he had one of those big family meetings that only sort of like the patriarch in the family can have, you know, where he brings his wives, he brings his kids, he has them over the house for a meal, everybody gathers around. He probably even brings the dog into the room and the pet lizard for this one. You know, everybody is going to be there. And he says, guys, we have drifted. We need to get back on track We need to repent of becoming worldly. We need to repent of becoming just like everybody else and get back to following God because our life is falling apart. And he says there's three things we have to do. We have to put away our foreign gods. Number two, we need to purify ourselves. And number three, we need to change our clothes. 
That sounds like a weird one, but let me explain these. Number one, he says, we need to put away our foreign gods. Now, who are these foreign gods? Where did they come from? I don't know. Maybe it happened that when um, they conquered Shechem, which was a really pagan Canaanite city, maybe all of a sudden his sons decided to bring home all these foreign little goddesses and these little idols they worshipped and brought them into their house and started to love them and sort of give affection to them and do the kind of things the Shechemites did. Maybe they didn't come from Shechem. Maybe it was just that his sons saved up their money and literally bought them at the store. I don't know where they came from. You don't know where they came from. But we do know this. The people of the land worshipped these foreign gods and these idols and gave their affection to them. And Jacob's sons had become just like the people around them. They were giving their affection and their time to things that weren't really God at all. They were trying to be just like the culture around them. Now, isn't that just like us? Don't we sometimes get so caught up in being just like everybody else around us, following the foreign gods, as it were, that uh, we're giving all the affection to things that really aren't worth it? Maybe for you, but it's like a boat. You live for your boat. You love your boat. Your boat is everything because that's what your friends do. They live for the boat. And that has become a God in your life. Maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe it's like some kind of a motorcycle or something else like this. He says, let's put those things away because they're not number one in our lives. Only the true God of the universe can be number one. Number two, he says, we need to purify ourselves. You know, foreign gods were the things they were giving their affections to. Purify themselves means get rid of, out of their life, the things they know they shouldn't be doing that they are doing behind the scenes that nobody else knows about or they think nobody else knows about. You know, if you're a teenager, what would it mean to purify yourself? Maybe you're just trying to be cool like your friends and you're smoking weed on occasions. I talk to teenagers that are like that. Purify yourselves. Get rid of that stuff. Maybe you're a teenager and because some of your friends are, are sipping booze, you're like, you know, I'm going to uh, drink just because I want to try, just because everybody else is doing it. Purify yourselves. Put that stuff away. Maybe you're a man and you find yourself looking at a bunch of seedy stuff on the Internet. Get a filter. Purify yourselves. Stop trying to drift and to become just like everybody else in the world around you. And then lastly, he says this, which is sort of strange. <laughs> we need to change our clothes. Now, I know what some of you ladies are thinking. I like this preacher because there's that dress I saw down at Arnold's Park in the Emporium, and now I can go home and have biblical precedent to buy it. Didn't the pastor just said change our clothes because Get me a new outfit, honey. I want to be biblical. What is going on here? The deal is, sometimes the clothes you wear bring back the memories of your past. Don't they? Uh, just give you an example. I have this one wrestling t-shirt. I had it for years. and I, One of my favorite t-shirts. You know, guys, we have those favorite t-shirts we just don't want to ever part with. 
Well, this t-shirt had become so ratted and so torn and so thin, I put it on one morning to go running, went running, and I didn't even see. It was totally dark, so I went up running super early, ended up running to see a friend of mine who was getting a, a promotion in the army. You know, they, they're all perfectly dressed, you get, get the pin on them and all the suits, everything like that, so I showed up in the back to keep my promise to be at that promotion, and I didn't even realize what I was wearing. It was really bad because by then the sun was up and I eventually went and looked in a mirror and I was horrified that I was wearing this terrible shirt that looked so gnarly at when he was getting a promotion in the army. And so every time I see that shirt, you know what I keep thinking of? Oh, I can't believe I wore that to Matt's promotion ceremony because it brings back memories. And what he is saying here He's saying, guys, we are going to repent. We are going to turn over a new leaf. And it's part of a new leaf. So it's very obvious and clear for you to know and for everybody else to know. We're even putting on new clothes. So when you look at your brothers and sisters, you see them as different people. Because from here on out, that's exactly who we're going to be. We're repenting and heading back to God. Now, for some of you, how would you apply this? You know, maybe it's time to get rid of your Black Sabbath t-shirts. That's who you were when you listened to those kind of concerts. That's not who you are with Jesus. For some of you, maybe it's time to get rid of your Coors shirt. Maybe it's time to get rid of your Budweiser shirt. Because that's not who you are in Jesus. That's who you were. And the clothes on the outside that you wear should reflect the fact that you are a new person on the inside. And ladies, let me speak to you. Some of the clothes you wear or have worn should not be worn, if you know what I mean, if you're claiming to be a Christian. Let's just say they're a little too skimpy, a little too seductive. They send a little too strong of a message. You know, maybe it's time to get rid of those clothes as well. In fact, what you literally see happens is Jacob takes the, these idols, he takes the things of their past, and he, they literally have a funeral ceremony for it. They dig a hole uh, under a terebinth tree, put everything in the hole, cover it up, and they, they say, you know, this is the funeral. This is, this is it. It's dead. It's gone. It's our past. Now, one little act of, one little side note that's sort of fun here. He says, put away your earrings. Now, I thought about that. What is going on with their earrings? Uh, I'll give you the historical side, then I'll give you the fun side. Here's the historical side. As part of the Canaanite pagan worship, they would often have these earrings that they would wear. So what he's saying is put away the Canaanite pagan worship stuff. that You guys are all clipping on your ears. That's what's historically going on. But there's a practical side to this, too. Because as I thought about it, you know, I'm okay with earrings. Maybe you're okay with earrings. As long as the person wearing them is a female. Honestly. You know, you guys, let me just speak to you. I know there's not a lot of people here who wear earrings. But just to let you know, maybe I'm just too old. But guys have this thing with wearing earrings now. You know, they get them on one ear. And I can't tell which ear is the right ear and which ear is the wrong ear. You know, so I don't know if they're trying to be cool or send me a strange message. 
just, just maybe I'm too old, they get confused. And then when guys start wearing earrings in both ears, then I'm totally done. I don't even know what that message is. So you can be biblical here and bury your earrings. Say you found it in the Old Testament. That's my just little word of advice for you on that. A little fun. But here's what I love uh, about this chapter. And this is going to be one of the main points I want to give you as we look here. Look at the flow of Jacob's life. And then look at the flow of your life and mine. Jacob started out in a good home, but he drifted far from God. Then Jacob, through the difficulties and hardships that were in his life, God brought him near. God literally wrestled with him. He had a great spiritual high point when he reconciled with his brother Esau. Incredible courage and faith to do that. But then he drifted away again. And yet God never left him. God used hard times to bring him back again. You see, Jacob is just like you and just like me. His faithfulness to God is up and down. When you think he could never walk away, he does it again and again. But while Jacob's faithfulness to God ebbs and flows, God's faithfulness to him never changes. Amen? Now you need to understand that because your life and my life is going to be just like Jacob's. Our faithfulness to God will at times ebb and flow. But you need to know that God's love for you, His faithfulness to you, never changes. He will never let you go. Even if you have... Uh, you've matured into what seems like a really good, strong Christian, and you've made a mess of your life again. He will still not let you go. He loves you today. He is faithful today. You need to understand, this is what makes us Christians. Christians means that we are basing our faith not on, our, not on the perfection of our faithfulness to God, but on the perfection of God's faithfulness to us through Jesus Christ. That is why it's called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he will never let you go, even when our grip on him is weak at best. So let's continue the story. I like this. It says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will be faithful. He will never let you go. Now picking up in verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuath. Let me just give you a, a little bit of an overview here. After his sons killed off the Shechemites, 
everybody around them were, was pretty nervous. People were thinking about joining forces together. we got to get rid of Jacob. But it says a terror from God fell upon them. And I don't know exactly how this works. Here's my thoughts. My thoughts are that everybody started thinking, hmm, do we really want to mess with these guys? I think they're a bunch of crazy nut jobs. Honestly, it took two of them to kill all the men in an entire city. The one thing you don't want to do is get all of the boys banding together. That would be a serious problem. Not only that, but they're moving. And when you're moving, you sort of let people go and don't necessarily fight with them. I don't know about you, but you ever have those neighbors that are a real problem? And you, you want to like, you're always dealing with them, and then they put a for sale sign in the front yard. You're like, I'm just going to bide my time. I'm going to let them go. And I think that's a little bit what's going on here. But the deal is, he comes back to Bethel, where he should have been in the first place. He sets up an altar. He does his worship like he promised God he would do a long time ago. And he sort of completes everything that he's supposed to do. And when he completes things, and all of a sudden, God sort of gets active in his life again. Let's look at verses 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Let me give a quick summary of this. What we find, first of all, is that God had given Jacob a name change. Actually, he had given him a name change a couple chapters ago. And God had changed his name from Jacob, which means the con man, to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. Uh, but Jacob had drifted and sort of acted more like a Jacob than an Israel. Now he's back on track. God says, you know, let me remind you, you have a new name because you are a new person. Your name is Israel. In addition to that, he reaffirms his covenant. There was a covenant that God had given to Abraham that had been passed on to his son Isaac and that he reaffirms this covenant that will now be passed on to Jacob. I'm going to give you this promised land. In fact, from you, Kings are going to come. We know that from Jacob will ultimately come King David and the ultimate king of all, which is Jesus. Let's continue the story. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrathah, Rachel went into labor. She had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, 
She called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Jamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. Let me apply this out to you. Many times we live under the false impression that when we are in a right relationship with God, that everything in life will be easy. That's what uh, prosperity gospel preachers will tell you. You know, if there's something wrong in your life, it's because something's wrong in your relationship with God. And if you would just get it straightened out, all the problems would go away. But as you follow Jacob's life, you see that can't be true. Jacob is back on track with God. He is, he's gone to Bethel. He's worshipped at Bethel. God has reaffirmed his covenant with him, reaffirmed his new name. Everything is going well, but it seems like the hardest, some of the hardest points in Jacob's life hit him at this moment. The first thing that hits him is his wife Rachel dies. And if you have been with us, you know that Jacob and Rachel have one of the ultimate in love relationships. Jacob had four wives, but he never wanted four. He only wanted one. He, in fact, he served Rachel's father for 14 years just to get Rachel as his wife. Now, anytime a guy will work 14 years at minimum salary to get one woman, you know he's in love. I mean... Not only that, but they were the closest in the relationship. And you can see again and again that Jacob and Rachel were extremely close, extremely in love. But here is the woman who is the apple of his eye. She dies unexpectedly in childbirth. She dies as a relatively young mom. Can you imagine the hole that is in Jacob's heart at this moment? As I was reflecting on this, um, I don't think I have any idea what it's like, but I do know this much. Cindy and I celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary this past year, and we're rapidly approaching that point where we've been together for more of our life than we've ever been apart for our life. And for me, I can't even imagine what life would be, out, would be like without my wife, Cindy. She's incredibly kind. You know, she spent, you know, last year or so, she spent out taking care of my mom apart from her family as she died of cancer. She took care of my father who has diabetes. She takes care of him, you know, as a sort of a stay-at-home nurse to this day. She's incredibly patient with me, incredibly loving for her family, her children. In fact, you know where she usually is on Sundays? In the nursery. Because she loves to give and to serve the people. I can't even imagine what life would be like without my wife. And Jacob lost Rachel in childbirth. See, 
one of the hardest times in his life that he ever faced happened not because he wasn't walking apart from God, but even when he was walking faithfully with God. Just so you understand, walking faithfully with God does not insulate us from the hard times in life. Isn't that true? Amen. But God will carry us through those hard times. The second thing that happens that is an incredible tragedy is his son, Reuben. Reuben is his firstborn son. He sleeps with Bilhah. Now, let me just give you some, some explanation. Who is Bilhah? Bilhah is one of Rachel's four wives. Let me tell you how they set up. It was Rachel and Leah that were the two women that Jacob found and married to. When they had fertility issue problems, they gave their maidservants to their husbands, sort of like, so they could essentially have children through them. Bilhah was Rachel's maidservant. Bilhah was the closest thing to Rachel that Jacob had left. Now, let me explain to you. I kept saying to myself, what is... What is Reuben doing seducing this older woman, trying to get this older woman to sleep with him? Because this is really, really strange and weird, right? Yeah, thank you. Somebody's at least saying yes today on that one. It's weird. Uh, here's what I think, and I'll tell you. I've been thinking about this for a while. When we first saw Reuben, you go back a few chapters, Reuben was the, just a toddler. He was out in the field, and if you remember this, he found some mandrakes. Remember that? And he brought the mandrakes home to his mother and gave them to her. Mandrakes were, in the ancient world, called love apples because they were considered an aphrodisiac and to help increase fertility for a woman. So what it was, was Reuben was trying to give these mandrakes to his mom to say, Mom, maybe these will help you become more favored in Dad's eyes. Because we learned back then that Jacob loved Rachel and he hated Reuben's mom named Leah. So Reuben was doing whatever he could to help Mom be the favored one. And I think the same thing is going on here. Remember, Bilhah is the closest thing that Jacob has towards Rachel. But by sleeping with her, he defiles her. She is given in this culture the status of living widowhood because of her infidelity. Jacob would never be with her again. Now there is only really one woman left for Jacob. And who is it? Reuben's mother. You see what's going on? This is all part of a ploy to return Leah, to try and help Leah become the favored wife of Jacob. But folks, it essentially backfires. While Bilhah is given the status of living widowhood, Reuben is essentially cut out of the inheritance. We find that when you get to Genesis chapter 49. Simeon and Levi are essentially cut out of the inheritance because of their mass murder of the Shechemites. Who's the next son down the line? Judah. Now you wonder, 
when the Bible tells us that all of a sudden God kept His promise not through Reuben, not through Simeon, not through Levi, but kept His promise through Judah, who came David, who ultimately came Jesus. This is why. Because Reuben defiled Bilhah and Simeon and Levi were mass murderers. That's why all of a sudden God went down to Judah. In fact, for the rest of the book, we're going to find, by the way, next week we're going to cover the end of Esau's life, and then the rest of Genesis is only about two people. It's about Judah, who's the next in line to carry the promise, and it's about Joseph, who's the firstborn of Rachel. Those are the two main focuses for the rest of the book. Now, let me just finish this up. Oh, next slide. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, which are Rachel's servant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, which was Leah's servant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre to Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last. He died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. What you find here is what is set up are the 12 tribes of Israel. From this point forward, we're going to focus on them. Jacob eventually goes back home. He goes to Mamre, has a reunion with his father Isaac. Isaac eventually dies at 180. Esau comes back home, and Jacob and Esau bury their father. Now let me give one added little postscript as we finish up this story of Jacob's life. Someone asked me, it's sort of strange, they said, because Esau and Jacob had an incredible amount of tension and fighting to be able to get the birthright and blessing in the front of their life. But once you get to the back of their life, you never hear about it again. Why is that? Here's my take. When Jacob and Esau were fighting about the birthright and the blessing when they were younger, it was worth an amount, an incredible amount of value both financially and family-wise. But we know that later in life, both Jacob and Esau had become incredibly wealthy on their own. Re remember when Jacob tried to reunite with Esau and Jacob sent a huge gift ahead to his brother? And what did his brother say? Oh, please, don't send me any more stuff. I already have enough. So all of a sudden, by the time they get to the middle age of their life, all of dad's wealth isn't as important as it once when they were younger. Isn't that interesting how things change? Here's the applications as we wrap this up. Number one, after mountain highs, it is easy to get sluggish and drift into spiritual lows. That happened to Jacob, and it can very easily happen to us. 
It's very hard. We have to constantly maintain our affections on the thing of Christ and not set our affections on the things of the world. That's the story of Jacob's life, and it's the story of our lives as well. Number two, God allows hard times to often snap us out of our spiritual stupor. Isn't that true? Hard times come into our life when we get back on our knees. Hard times come into our life and we realize how far we've drifted. And to that end, hard times are a tool used by God to bring spiritual renewal into our lives. And they're a good thing. Number three, even when we are walking in step with God, that doesn't mean life will be easy. Some of Jacob's hardest moments happened when he was walking faithfully with God. Rachel died. His firstborn son committed incest. Terrible things. And lastly, and this is most important, no matter how many times we are unfaithful to God, He is faithful to us. He will never drift away. That's the story of Jacob's life. Up and down. He's faithful and unfaithful, and he walks away. But God never lets him go. And today, it's the story of our lives as well. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're somebody who is walking, has drifted away from God, and you're finding yourself struggling with faithfulness, and you wonder, God, could you ever take me back? Because I know better. Could you ever forgive me because I've drifted away? And the good news of the Bible is this. Even when you're unfaithful, God is always faithful. God and his love for you will never let you go. And he'll even in his love use hard times to bring you back to him. Amen? Now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're going to celebrate how God sent his own son to have the perfection, to have the faithfulness, to die in our place for our sins because we could never save ourselves. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your faithfulness in spite of our failure. We see that in Jacob's life, and it reminds us that you're faithful in our lives. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we just want to thank you that our relationship with you is based completely on a gift in the righteousness and perfection of your Son. Not on our perfection, which we know is often drifting and unfaithful. Thank you that you love us and you don't let us go. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.